There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi there, and welcome to the Stock Club podcast. I'm James, and with me this week is my Wall Street co-founder and chief investor, Emmett Savage, our head analyst, Rory Caron, and our financial analyst, Anne-Marie Kingsland. Today, we're talking about Microsoft making its second largest acquisition of all time, why Facebook might be in big trouble thanks to Apple's new update, and both Rory and Anne-Marie pitched me two exciting companies that they're interested in at the minute. So guys, we have a new voice on the podcast today. Anne-Marie, welcome to Stock Club. So you joined us here at my Wall Street a few months ago, and you've been working closely with both Emmett and Rory over the past while. Um Say hello to the people listening to the podcast, I suppose, and, and what areas or industries within investing are you particularly interested in or do you focus in on the most? Hi, guys. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, so actually something I'm looking into right now is autonomous driving technology. It was something that came up when I started doing research on Google this week and kind of the competition between Waymo, which is Google's autonomous driving technology versus Tesla and the two strategies that they're using in terms of LiDAR sensors. So that's something I'm researching at the minute. So that's kind of interesting. Where are you from, Emery? Colorado. Are you from Denver? Um, from outside of Denver. Okay, because I've always had a question about Denver. I should probably I, I saved it up for the podcast. You know the way it's called the Mile High City. Yeah. Does that mean anyone who's ever had intimate relations in Denver is in the Mile High Club? <laughs> um, I guess you could say that, but there are specific parts of Denver that are like labeled as being a Mile High. So if you go to Coors Field where the baseball team is, there's like one level of seats that is purple because they're like this is officially a mile above sea level. So I guess if you're in that row of seats at Coors Field, then yes, you can say that. I, I have an additional question. This one is for Rory. Rory, how long have you been holding on to that question for? <laughs> I, I actually. Um, I actually only thought about it last night because I was looking up the the conspiracy theories around Denver International Airport, which is a oh, whole yeah. other podcast. Uh, but is yeah, that the just, airport that, that that's like linked to Satanism or something? It's in like a six 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 shape. There's loads of weird stuff going on. Yeah. Okay, well, maybe maybe that's a, that's a that's a new branch we can extend into conspiracy <laughs> theories about airports. Um, so let's kick on. We've got a, a pretty packed schedule today. So the first thing I want to talk about, which is the biggest news of this week, I think, is the news that Microsoft has acquired Nuance Communications at a staggering 19.7 billion dollar price tag. This is Microsoft's biggest purchase since LinkedIn back in 2016. Nuance is an AI company that has developed speech-to-text software and is probably most famously known for its help in the development of Apple's AI assistant Siri. Most recently, the company has been involved in the healthcare industry too, and in the press release Microsoft released to announce the deal, it, they mentioned that Nuance will be used to expand its Microsoft cloud for healthcare capabilities. Emmett, I'm going to come over to you first because I know you have a bit of a, a history, maybe is, is the right word, with Nuance Communications. First off, what, what are your thoughts on Microsoft shelling out so much for this company? Well, to answer that question, I would like to hop in a time machine and go back a little bit. James, because it's quite a story. And I, I have to start by declaring that I am a former part owner of Nuance. In okay. other words, I was a shareholder. And, and I had a quick look at my brokerage. It's open here in front of me. Um, I first bought 210 shares in Nuance in June 06 for $9.22 a pop. Then I bought 200 more. 
the following that August for seven bucks and twenty five cent a pop, and then I bought a final ninety shares the following April, which means I had five hundred shares, which I sold in September '09 for fourteen dollars a pop, making me the only person in history to have made money on nuance. So I actually, <laughs> <laughs> and that two thousand dollars gain was fab. I was very happy with myself. Yeah. But there is a dark side to this hot ticket of voice recognition. And if I go further into the annals of history and into shareholder registers, there's a certain Emmett Savage, which is me actually, the, me uh, in this story, who was invested in a company called Learnout and Houseby Speech Products. Yeah. Or L&H, which was a Belgium-based speech recognition technology company founded by two individuals, Joe Learnout and Paul Houseby. And it floated on the NASDAQ in 1995. And at that time caught my attention, as at that time I had a feeling speech recognition would be like a dominant theme of technology in the future. So um, I bought shares way, way back when. Now, during March of 2000, Learn it. Learn it has been was the hot ticket. You couldn't mm. be an investor without at least being aware of them. And they were on this acquisition, like kind of roadshow, and they they acquired Dictaphone. You know, like yeah, <laughs> the original voice recognition machine. They acquired Dictaphone for a billion dollars, and then shortly after, they acquired Dragon Systems. Um, they were buy, buying up everything to do with voice recognition, left, right, and center, and unquestionably. They were the growing monopoly in all things to do with speech recognition. But, but in, like, I suppose before they, let me think, it was in 99, the Wall Street Journal ran um, their Heard on the Street column. Uh, and it was written by a chap who works in Goldman Sachs, or did at the time, called Robert Smithson. And he said that their earnings had been overstated. And, and with that article... Trouble was born in speech recognition, Bill. So, um, so I need to read an excerpt. Hold on, from Wiki because I don't want to lowball what happened next, but yeah. it's relevant. It gets I'm, to. I, I haven't forgotten the question. I am yeah. suitably excited to hear this. Yeah. So I'm reading from Wiki. Here we go. Further investigation by Wall Street Journal staffer Jesse Isinger led to the revelation that on the eighth of August, two thousand of a major financial scandal involving fictitious transactions in Korea and improper accounting methodologies elsewhere, uh, elsewhere rather. In April 2001, founders Joe Learnhout and Paul Houseby, as well as former CEO Gaston Bastines, were arrested in what is considered to be one of the largest corporate scandals in history prior to Enron. Learnout and Houseby finally went bankrupt on 25th of October 2001 after having struggled for a year. And a certain Emmett Savage, which is still me, lost his entire investment, which that bit isn't in Wiki, but I am going to add it in. <laughs> <laughs> and what has this to do with Nuance? Well, let me tell you, after that bankruptcy, Nuance Communications, which at that time were known as Scansoft, that was their name, um, acquired all of the speech technologies that Learnet and Hesby uh, had on their books for like something like the price of burrito. I remember guffawing at how ridiculously low price it was, and it uh, and they they made something of it. And today, that crock of well, you know what has become the second largest acquisition Microsoft has ever made. It they're paying something like twenty billion, nineteen point seven billion dollars. And by the way, the dragon 
naturally speaking product that they had bought that nuance had bought some 20 years ago has endured and is still as far as i know the flagship product of nuance yeah and it is it is i guess one of the cornerstone investments that microsoft has made and i guess the moral of the story for floated businesses um is just survive <laughs> just survive <laughs> i mean like it was it is it is and the other moral is that emmett savage will never forget if you screw him over <laughs> Yeah. Oh, by it was the first, and I'm reluctant to say only. Actually, look at this, James. You know, our, our listeners can't hear this, but this is a class action. You get these class action calls for class action lawsuit, and this is for Helios and Matson, who are Helios and yeah, Matson, who did the cinema ticket uh, scam. <clears throat> but anyway, uh, but I think the only company I ever lost my entire shirt on was. Learner and Houseby. My yeah. whole investment went up in smoke. I think I lost two grand, which is precisely the profit or the, the capital gain I made on Nuance. Now, one last point, the one last point, James, right? Because I'm obviously on a rant and I'm on a roll. But like 15 years ago, um, Dragon's Naturally Speaking Software, which I bought to write with, uh, would more accurately transcribe more words from my woke, broken dishwasher than from me <laughs> i think i left my laptop on the dishwasher and i came back and um uh, like an ode to a greek a grecian urn was written out for me whereas in fact if i spoke into it i couldn't get it to string five words together so when i saw the acquisition by microsoft i thought i hope someone at microsoft plugged it in and gave it a shot because honestly her. <laughs> I mean, it's a $20 billion piece of kit. I guess they looked at it, but hey, we'll see. I have a story about Nuance as well. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. how, how do two people have a story about a voice recognition, <laughs> piece of voice recognition software? Well, I'll make, I'll, I'll make it a short story. Essentially, when I was, when I was in college, I, I sprained my, sprained my hand. Uh, I kind of was surfing or sailing and anyway, I had a thesis to write. So I ended up downloading this incredibly expensive software, which I believe was Dragon or was linked to Dragon anyway. And the idea was that you could talk into your computer and it would type it out for you so that you could. Uh, exactly. And it took like days to get onto my old crappy um, laptop and it didn't work very well with Mac either. There was some problems there. And anyway, after about two or three days of trying to get it to work, I realized it was about as useless as a ch chocolate teapot and gave up. And it was just a total disaster. So I'm guessing from this, neither of you are too bullish on, on this new purchase from Microsoft. I don't know anything about it. I mean, the fact that they created Siri says a lot because Siri's crap. <laughs> but it, it appears it appears to be part of this kind of Microsoft's move into the healthcare industry too. And as part of the deal, Nuance currently has about 10,000 healthcare customers on its books, including the likes of Athena Health, John Hopkins and the Cleveland Clinic. Do we think this might have been on Microsoft's part a bit of a, like a land grab and, and kind of snapping up these big healthcare customers? Yeah, and actually, you know, although I make light of it and the Dragon Naturally Speaking software 15 years ago was complete rubbish, uh, I'm sure, I genuinely mean I'm sure it's good now because there is a standard that the world has come to expect. And I do think that, I think it's quite a smart acquisition. I think Microsoft have done a really good job at changing their entire storyboard over the last few years. And I think they continue to do so with Nuance. Like, you know, this is their second biggest after LinkedIn, isn't that right? Yeah. They paid more for LinkedIn. I'm obviously trivial realizing the purchase but I, I would imagine that there's quite a lot of very well paid and intelligent MBA sitting in Seattle in Microsoft HQ who've looked at this and said we can make something far far bigger of this than 20 billion would suggest today. 
funnily enough, there's a they they spun off a business uh, about eighteen months ago that I'm quite interested in called Serence, which was um, tipped off to me by Jason Moser at the Motley Fool, which yeah. is voice software for cars. So that's a company I've been okay. keeping quite an eye on, and yeah, yeah, interesting that that got spun off just before. And Rory, just one last point on this conversation. You know, we spoke in the last episode of Stock Club about Amazon's incursion into the telehealth industry with Amazon Care. And now we're talking about another big tech giant kind of further embedding itself into the world of healthcare. Do you think healthcare is becoming the new gold rush for these big tech companies that don't really have anywhere left to expand? Well, I mean, not knowing much about nuance or what, you know, the the crossover that Microsoft has in mind with this, I, I definitely think healthcare is a space that people are getting into. And yeah, we talked about it when we talked about the Stock of the Month uh, podcast, and we might be talking about it again in the upcoming segment. Oh, Just a okay. little teaser for you. <laughs> Exciting. By the way, um, I got some feedback after last podcast that it was a great show. And I was like, wow, it's the first show I did zero preparation for. (laughs) You're not supposed (laughs) to say that on air, Emmett. (laughs) Nothing. I actually, uh, so I didn't do any for this. So come on, hit me, whatever. (laughs) Hit me with a subject. (laughs) Right, let's move on then. And the next thing we're going to talk about, it seems quite boring on the surface, but it's actually a topic that will have big ripple effects on a lot of the companies in the My Wall Street shortlist. So an impending update to Apple's iOS system looks like it's going to have a huge effect on the digital advertising titans like Facebook. Apple's new iOS 14.5 update, which is slated to arrive sometime this month, will see iPhone users now being asked to opt in to device tracking by advertisers rather than opt out, as was the case up until now. So what this essentially means is that apps which use ad tracking technology for advertisers will now be required to provide users with a standard warning and an opt-in message before they're installed. Of course, it's expected that many iOS users will opt out of this kind of tracking when asked, which will in turn severely impact sales of advertisers. Rory, I'm going to come over to you first for your perspective on this. It might seem like a boring topic, as I said, but considering that the vast majority of someone like Facebook's $86 billion in annual revenue comes from advertising, surely this is going to have a massive impact on the company. Yeah, it's not exciting news and it's not actually really news because it was um, announced well over a year ago now or maybe yeah. June last year. Um, but what's what's happening now is it actually is going to be rolled out. We, we think it'll be rolled out uh, in the next release at the end of this month. And yeah, it's it, the basic premise is a move, is a change in Apple's policy regarding the use of tracking user data in iOS and, and that you, you have to get consent basically to share people's data with third parties. Um, and it, it's a massive change in, in, in just the whole concept of advertising. You know, for years, we've just been kind of operating under this kind of belief that people were fine with their data being connected yeah. and, uh, and that, uh, their movements and behaviours being shared and sold uh, unless they specifically said no. And even then it was very hard you know, it's often buried very deep in the back of a company's privacy settings or in an app settings. And and on that point, Roy, I think people were fine with it because people didn't really understand what what their data could be used for. I think it was only in the last few years people started to be like, hold on a minute. Yeah, and I mean, there's kind of two sides of the argument. I think in some ways it's kind of played up quite a lot by the media in terms of what's actually being tracked. You know, people, look, no company is really interested in your personal life. You know, it's it's part yeah. of a bigger data set that, you know, of anonymized data uh, that, um, that, that helps them basically figure out how to best target advertising to people but you know even in you know when we were discussing the stock of the month uh, podcast we you and me talked about that book nudge by Thaler and, and Sunstein and how that yeah. related to behavioral healthcare. W- going back to that book one of the main points the authors made was this power of the default position you know and they 
they cite many studies in the book, but the one that always stands out to me is the one regarding uh, organ donation. And this, yeah. there's, there's countries, uh, particularly in kind of Northern Europe, like Norway and, and, and Austria and um, Sweden, where they have an opt-out system regarding uh, organ donorship. So basically everyone's an organ donor until you specifically say you're not an organ donor. Um, meanwhile, in Ireland and the UK, you actually have to opt in to become an organ donor. And of course, most people, even though they might say they would, wouldn't be opposed to donating their was never opt into the system. So, I mean, up until now, we've very much been living in an opt-out system in terms of letting other companies harvest and sell our, our user data. Apple is now turning that on its head and saying, from now on, it's opt-in. You have to ask users to opt, in, uh, to opt into this. And importantly, it doesn't just apply to Apple's own identification system, um, what's called the IFDA. This applies to any app that's in the App Store. If, if they're transmitting any data to third parties, they're going to get in trouble. And now that means yeah. that not only are they going to have to, you know, ask people not to do it, but they're also going to have to monitor each app when it comes in and, and there's going to be an analog element to it as well. And, you know, Tim Cook, when he was asked about this, said, I'll send out a quote here. It says, technology does not need vast troves of personal data stitched together across dozens of websites and apps in order to succeed. Advertising existed and thrived for decades without it. If a business is built on misleading users, on data exploitation, on choices that are no choices at all, then it does not deserve our praise. It deserves reform. And I completely agree with him on that. And obviously two businesses that were going to be most affected were Google and Facebook. And Google actually really didn't put up much of a fight. They kind of said, you know what, we were kind of moving away from this model anyway. We get an awful lot of data through through our own um, sites anyway, so we don't really need to worry about that. Facebook, on the other hand, launched a huge campaign to fight back on this, a, a PR campaign, took out full page ads in newspapers, arguing that this would fundamentally change the way the internet worked for the worst. And claimed that really what Apple was doing was going to damage small independent content creators the most. Uh, they particularly kind of pointed at you know, people who have like recipe websites, um, which yeah. to me, again, was just annoying because so many times you go to a website for a recipe and you read about, you know, 30, 30 minutes worth of just them talking about, you know, when they went to Italy and, and yeah. were in Santorini. And, and that the only reason they do that is basically to juice the SEO system so that they can get more advertising onto their site. So, so I don't really agree with them on that. Anyway, since then, I'm, I'm ranting here. Since then, Facebook has come out and been a lot less hawkish on the whole idea. They've claimed that even that they're even going to benefit from this this change. Um, that sellers will find it easier now to sell directly on Facebook's own property. It's hard to say if that's just a face-saving exercise or something they actually believe. I think they noted that it's going to be kind of at the end of this quarter or maybe the next quarter where we're going to see the impact this is going to have on Facebook's business. But moreover, it's kind of, it's this whole move is very much started back years ago with the San Bernardino incident and, and Apple coming out and become, becoming kind of the privacy tech company, the company that said, yeah. we're going to be the ones who protect your privacy against all the others. And at the time, you know, we talked about what Ben Thompson calls a strategy credit. You know, this wasn't necessarily, you know, it, it seemed like a big announcement at the time, but really didn't impact Apple's business that much as they were, um, they weren't really focused on advertising. But now we look at it and we see, well, Apple is now very well positioned to be kind of the privacy tech company. And what does that open it up to? It opens it up to things like healthcare, which we were talking about with Amazon. Yeah. Um, and I think that's where the real move here is. Yeah. And it's kind of, I suppose, how Apple justifies the premium price of its products. It's that you have that extra privacy and security. And at this topic, I, th- I suppose, raised 
an example in my mind and it was something we've talked about before is how so many businesses are so dependent on other companies in order to make their money you know we've seen this with apple before in in terms of epic games and match.com criticizing the app store fees they charge we've seen it ourselves in our own company about you know how you're kind of beholden to the the rules apple sets to you in the app store is this something you look at when you're considering an investment opportunity? Do you think about how much a company's sales and, and its overall business is influenced by the whims of other companies? Yeah, and actually I do very much so. And like since commerce was born, there's been an interdependency between two or more businesses. There's barely a business that scales that doesn't have very, very many suppliers. And there's a lot of different ways you can go about it. I guess the First and foremost is you look at the cost of sales um, and what are the constituent parts and the cost of sales. But I guess, you know, where I always like to come from is more of a strategic view because we invest in businesses with great strategies and, and business strategy encompasses a lot of things at its most fundamental level. Like strategy is the arrangement of resources at your disposal to achieve a desired outcome. So you start off with a mission and a vision and all that stuff. But then um, when you get down to it, there's some really interesting writings on like the strategic power of a provider of a service. And and Michael Porter, Professor Michael, Michael Porter, I think of Harvard University, came up with this framework called Porter's Five Forces, which anyone who's done a, an MBA or a master's in strategy or probably even a, a business degree has looked at in some at some level. And effectively, Porter says there's five forces. Technology is not one of them, but there's five forces on every business and uh, like the bargaining power of the buyer. But one of the one of those five forces is the bargaining power of suppliers and 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 you you look I look at a business and there's kind of a couple of simple che- checks I, I'll usually run like there's the simple one which is can Fang one of the Fang family destroy this business overnight uh, so uh, and that that is a conversation unto itself but mm. then it's like how much of what they earn is ultimately flowing backwards and can they move into the vertical can they actually own the entire supply chain um, and businesses that grow to a trillion dollars in valuation generally have owned the entire version yeah. of the entire supply chain. Amazon jumps to mind straight away when yeah. you think of that. Oh, and tiny. And tiny. Look at look at Apple even. They they went into the into retail, which was when when they did it, nobody wanted to go into retail, but they wanted you to feel you're in a boutique, you're in this special place carved from wood and glass and stone and you know there was somebody there to look at you and they got rid of cash registers. But anyway, do I look at how much of the cost or the ticket goes backwards i absolutely do yeah. and um and i think the big debate and we feel it my wall street we see the cost of a sale we see apple or google take a big chunk out of uh out of the monies that our customers presume is going fully to the business but are not about 70 percent comes our way yeah so let's move on then. And Henry, I want to come to you on this one because this is something you wrote a daily insight about in my Wall Street last week. And, you know, a lot of recent news around Amazon has focused on the fight it's been having recently to stop unionization in its workforce. The company recently came out on top of a union vote in Alabama with more than a two to one margin, but they still get a lot of criticism about the treatment of their workers and especially in their warehouses. Um, I, wanted, I wanted to ask you, Henry, what are your thoughts on investors who are looking at a company like Amazon you know on one hand it's had massive uh, growth in terms of its share price over the past few years but on the other hand a lot of people might have ethical questions about a company like this especially around its business practices. 
Yeah, I well, it was something that that was kind of the angle I took on it on Thursday was um, I think it's something that each investor kind of has to make the decision themselves and determine how much of an impact is a scandal like this going to have on your ability to hold a stock for years and years to come. I think I personally don't hold Amazon and I know kind of a lot of people in my age range. I think that would be a hesitation that they have in investing in general is sometimes they're like, I don't know. I know that Amazon is going to grow exponentially in the next 10 years, but I don't know. Do I necessarily want to be associated with that or, you know, making a profit off that, even though you're just a stockholder, you're not necessarily, you know, joining their board of directors. Exactly. Um, Yeah. I suppose another point you made in that, which I thought was interesting too, was the fact that a lot of you know, when we talk about ethical investing, some people tend to think that as a, as a hard and fast category, but it kind of misses the point that a lot of people have different ethical considerations and, and what they consider, uh, ways they in which they consider a company to operate ethically. You know, you mentioned there about, you know, um, diversity on boards and leadership teams and especially gender diversity. Um, you mentioned things about Warren Buffett investing in tobacco companies. Um, how important, I suppose, is it that, that people invest in, what they themselves find ethical rather than what, you know, they might think is ethical in a general sense of the word. I definitely think it's something, particularly in the situation that we're in, where we're promoting you picking individual stocks, you know, you're not picking a fund and you're sitting saying, okay, I'm going to hold this stock for 10, 20, 30 years. It's definitely something like you need to do it for yourself on a stock to stock basis. And you just sit there and say, okay, am I going to be comfortable with where this company is going to go in the next 20 or 30 years? And I think that's a huge issue with say tobacco or oil companies that people began to make probably back in the eighties and nineties where they were like, I don't know if I'm comfortable with how this industry behaves. And so they began to distance themselves from it. Even if, you know, oil stocks have incredible dividends, you know, I think you have to kind of say, if this stock was to plummet, would I still hold it? Even if I disagreed with it morally? Yeah. What about you, Rory? So looking at the companies in the My Wall Street showroom at the minute, ethically speaking, there might be question marks over some of them. I think Facebook is probably the most pertinent example of them being frequently accused of undermining democracy as a whole. But there's other companies like Microsoft, which I know recently had an employee protest over its decision to take on a military contract. What are your thoughts on the kind of the whole idea of ethical investing? Yeah, we've, uh, I feel like we've had this conversation a couple of times, but it's worth, I suppose, repeating in, in light of what's happening with Amazon at the moment. You know, when you talk about ESG investing, we've we've had the conversation before, basically every company these days is an ESG company because, you know, you yeah. hire someone, you hire someone to be your ESG person and they put out a lot of press releases about how ESG you are. Um, yeah. In terms of like the ethics of investing, it's one of those things that's just so fluid, isn't it? You know, there's certain things I know just between me and Emmett in terms of our, you know, we've talked about it plenty of times in the past, companies that we probably just would never touch. I'm talking about like, yeah, tobacco companies is probably pretty high up there. We don't really, we don't invest in energy companies, for example, or, or definitely kind of the fossil fuel companies. We don't invest in gun manufacturers. These are just kind of things that we, the two of us collectively have kind of decided are just not for us. Um, yeah. Now, at the same time, you know, I said we have Facebook in there, we have Amazon in there, we have Coca-Cola in there, you know, Big Sugar. I'm sure that's done an awful lot of damage uh, to people over the years. So, you know, we're, we're not perfect. We haven't got uh, all the right answers. We've we've drawn a line somewhere. And yeah. I suppose it's just for everyone to draw their own lines. You know, that's that's really what it's about. If you feel comfortable holding a stock and you know, like every company has its, you know, 
positives and negatives, I suppose. Um, don't hold me to that. I'm sure there's some out there that have no <laughs> positives. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that's, that's just part of investing. It's part of like, you know, and, and as Emmett often says, you know, your portfolio should be a reflection of your beliefs in the world. Um, so, you know, if you believe in something, if you believe it's going to be big over the next 10 years, it's going to be a positive impact on the world over the next 10 years. Or you could be one of those people who has a very negative view of things, you know, a real pessimist <laughs> and think the world's going to hell. So uh, yeah. you can invest that way as well. I believe there's, there's actually uh, an ETF for companies that have like you know bad <laughs> bad effects on the world things called vice really yeah it's got uh, it's got a lot it's got all the alcohol companies all the casino companies all the tobacco companies all the gun companies uh, and i think it has that one and only um strip club company uh probably okay. the strip club company uh, whose name I can't remember now, but I remember looking at a few years ago thinking that was wild. There was a, a, a chain of strip clubs listed on, on the New York Stock Exchange. Yeah, that, and it's wild that there's an ETF that follows companies like that. I don't think uh, that'll be up for inclusion in my Wall Street shortlist anytime soon. <laughs> Let's move on then, take a look at some of the things going on in my Wall Street at the minute. So we're midway through the month, which means that we are both our new Stock of the Month pick and our exclusive Stock of the Month podcast live in the My Wall Street app right now. This coming Monday, we're also adding a new stock to our market-beating shortlist, which at time of writing has returned an average of 184% versus the S&P 500's return of just over 72% in the same time. Rory, have you any clues for us for this upcoming stock? No, I don't even know what it is yet. I'm <laughs> thinking a bit late. <laughs> There's just so much choice out there at the moment. It's hard to, it's hard to pinpoint. <laughs> so much value, just so much value. <laughs> so don't forget that it's only members of the My Wall Street community that will get access to all of this great stuff. So if you want to check it out, just tap the link in the notes for today's show and start your free trial. It looks like it's going to be as much of a surprise to you as it is to us. <laughs> so let's move on to Jargon Busters. And Rory, I'm going to come to you first on this. And this is a company that we actually asked about quite a lot, which is BlackBerry. Stephen wrote into us via email, recently asked us, what our thoughts on BlackBerry were, especially the price we've seen over the past year or so. Yeah, it's uh, the BlackBerry is by far, it's one of the companies that I am asked about probably more than any other business. And my response to Stephen is, why? Why are people so obsessed with this company? It seems yeah. like it's kind of just relentless. Um, I suppose there's an awful lot kind of going on in terms of BlackBerry. It's often kind of, mentioned alongside I suppose the GameStops and the AMCs of the world it's this kind of major business that had a huge amount of brand recognition 10-15 years ago which is now I mean like you look at the stock chart over there well I was actually looking at before we started recording it's down 94% still from its all-time highs in 2008 and of course we all know what was released in 2007 the iPhone mm, yeah it's pretty telling the, I mean this is a, a problem that I think a lot of um new investors definitely fall into is this concept of anchoring uh so you you typically look at yeah. a stock and you see and, and and this is this is very much an, an extreme example um of it but you look at a stock that's maybe you know 30 40 percent below a recent all-time high and your immediate kind of uh your immediate kind of thought is well it's 30 or 40 percent below where it was recently therefore i'm getting a 30 40 percent discount on where it will be again at some point um you know this idea that well if it hit that at one point it'll definitely hit it again at some stage so mm. i'm just I'm, I'm it's the old buy low sell high nonsense that gets so many new investors in, in, into trouble um, uh, and in terms of BlackBerry, I mean, you know, I haven't really looked at this in, I'd say, about two years. I, we were getting an awful lot of kind of people asking about it. 
And I know they were getting into software. It was end-to-end encryption software. They had a new OS that was focused around kind of cars and the Internet of Things. And, you know, I have to kind of um, admit the ignorance here and that I don't really know how it's been going. I don't think yeah. it's not a, it's not a particular area that we focus on uh, inter because it's it's kind of linked to cybersecurity, which we kind of almost bowed out of a while ago. Yeah. <laughs> we realized that it's a far more um, complex industry than 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 I'm kind of able to, to get my head around. But it's, you know, in terms of if I was just looking at it from a from a financial point of view, its revenue has been kind of flat to 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 going down over the last couple of years. Um, I don't think it has the same kind of, definitely not, it's, it's a B2B company now anyway, so it doesn't matter, but it certainly doesn't have the same kind of brand recognition that it used to or... or or any anywhere near the same sort of prestige, and yeah, it just kind of seems to be a company that's muddling along, switching tact all the time. Doesn't ever seem to kind of really execute on on its long term goals. And I stand to, you know, as I said, I stand to eat crow pie here in a couple of years when it's when it's blasted off. But yeah, it's it's more. I'm I'm more interested in BlackBerry around the interest that's generated around it rather than actually yeah. what's going on in the business itself. Anne-Marie, you had a great story about Barack Obama and his BlackBerry when we were preparing for this podcast. Yeah, he. it was for years he was made fun of when he was president because they they were always like, why don't you have an iPhone? Because he became president in 2008 and he would walk around with a BlackBerry all the time. And he was like, oh, the Secret Service informed me that I have to have a BlackBerry for security issues because it's the only one that they can fully secure and ensure that won't get hacked. And then I think immediately after he left office, there was a big scandal that all of these BlackBerries had been hacked. <laughs> and Rory was just talking about the strategy credit Apple now have with, you know, being the most secure thing. So I suppose it just just looks like shows how BlackBerry was left in the dust. So Emmett, I just want to throw the final question over to you. And this comes in from David, again, through the My Wall Street app. He was asking about our thoughts on Virgin Galactic. Um, this is one of the stocks you've picked at the Horizon portfolio, isn't it? It is indeed, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I'm, I'm a huge fan of Virgin Galactic because they have a first mover advantage, back to that strategy thing, in the in suborbital, or suborbital space experience for private astronauts, which yeah. is effectively us. Now, we, we can all see there's a race upwards and SpaceX dominate uh, the storyboard, if you like, of, of, of going up into space. But there's kind of three bands in space at its most simple they're suborbital where virgin galactic and blue origin are are aiming their rockets there's orbital where which is where spacex and gateway and axiom space and you know are, are pointing their different rockets and then there's lunar and interplanetary which is way out beyond planet earth and spacex and space adventures uh would be the leaders in that so if you take those three bands if you like there's effectively just two players in suborbital experiences virgin galactic and blue origin and there is effectively only one player in the recreation of going up to space yeah yeah, absolutely. And I suppose one of the big risks, or I suppose the near-term risks you see with a company like Virgin Galactic is that it makes no money at the moment because it, it's yeah. not operating as it's intended to be. Would, would, would you, I suppose, categorize Virgin Galactic as one of the wildcard stocks you talked about recently on that webinar you ran? Well, 
Yeah, you could make it fit, but I never thought of it as that because okay. where where I took inspiration from Virgin Galactic was that story that I've probably regaled here in the podcast before about the reali- realization that you invest in a mega trend very early and just stick with with the, uh, one of the leaders through thick and thin. Um, once that new industry is fully in flight, there's no pun intended. There's massive, massive returns to be made. Yeah. And the specific one that I've, I suppose, uh, nurtured in my heart my whole life was Dell, which went up 1,600 fold during the decade of the 1990s. And, and, um, and that, that is like transformative wealth creation uh, gains. Now, obviously, going up to space is not as mass market as a home or business computer. I'm fully aware of that. But right now, nobody I know personally has been up to space. Nobody I know personally has an ambition or has had a conversation about, you know what, I think I'm going to go up to space for a vacation. But um, it will happen in yeah. our lives. It will happen that to get from London to Sydney, which is the overused example of a long journey, it, rather than it taking and I'm really shooting from the hip here, let's say 16, 16 or 17 hours. hours right? yeah. Okay, 16 or 17 hours of, of airborne travel. It could take two to three hours. And there are people who have deep enough pockets that that time is worth going outside the ionosphere. I mean, today, um, Virgin Galactic is a $6 billion business. It had a run post IPO. It kind of got some hot attention, but they are approaching their corner of space travel in a different way to all the other ones and since it's foundation like the founders view is that there is an opportunity to provide normal folks private individuals a space travel experience at far less cost than anyone else like governments or traditional spacecraft uh, providers so i think virgin galactic is one of these ones you look at you invest in it's in the same family if you like as crispr which is a gene editing very few people have experienced or know someone who's experienced this technology but do i believe that space travel is going to be a a certainty yes i have it up in the 90 percentile of certainty and our 90 plus percent of certainty and then do i believe that uh, Virgin Galactic has the resources to survive the journey because it has 660 million cash on the balance sheet at the moment. It is all about, <laughs> no pun intended, runway. They need to survive. They need to get credible. They need to have zero loss of life if possible. But ultimately, this industry will uh, light up in our lifetime. Absolutely. So let's finish up today's podcast and we'll move on to elevator pitch. So I'm going to give you guys a bit of a free reign today. I just want you to pitch me a company you're researching or interested in at the minute. Um, Rory and Rhea have asked you guys to prepare this. So I'm going to come to you first, seeing as it's your first appearance on Stop Club. Great. Throw me right into the fire. Right into um, the fire. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're judging. You're not coming back if this is a bad pitch. Okay, great. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. And the, we record every two weeks, so it better be good in two weeks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, so a company that I'm looking at is Fresh Pet um, right now. Fresh Pet makes fresh refrigerated dog food that you can either get through a subscription service through some various online channels or you can pick it up in your local grocery store. Uh, the main reason I'm kind of interested in it is that there's been a 4% growth in pet ownership during 2020. We've seen everybody run out during the pandemic to get a pet because they were scared they were going to be lonely. And uh, the largest growth of this has been dogs. Everybody wants a dog. Yeah. Um, and the kind of reason that it caught my attention, specifically Fresh Pet over you know, kind of a large conglomerate like Smuckers, for example, which owns Kibbles and Bits and Ainsworth, um, is because there's this really weird viral trend online of people 
like giving their dogs completely raw food and they think it's it's this is like the wellness trend but for pets and they give them (laughs) they give them like chicken legs and like lamb hearts and quail eggs and all this weird stuff and I think that that's a real flash in the pan. Like, I don't think that's a sustainable fat. I don't yeah. think that that's somewhat, something that people can do um, over a long period. But I do think it's the most extreme example of a growing trend we're seeing where people are becoming more conscious of what they're giving their dogs. And they want to give them better food, food that they can recognize that has, you know, vegetables and meat in it. And Fresh Pet really corners that market where they label themselves as being all natural. All of their meat is either 100% beef or chicken. And so I think that they could ride this wave really nicely and have some nice growth. That being said, their valuation at the minute is really steep, but it's it's on my radar. We'll, We'll wait and see. It really feeds into that humanization of pets trend we've talked about a lot, Rory, and that awful, awful term Don't you use me too, which is... Uh, no, Luke, you can just be- beep that out. <laughs> um, sorry, what's the name of that company again, Henry? That's Fresh Pet. Fresh Pet. Uh, Rory, what stock are you looking at at the moment? Yeah, interesting one that I'm keeping an eye on. It's recently IPO, but uh, I've made no... Uh, I haven't hidden the fact that I'm not a big fan of the gig economy delivery companies like DoorDash and Uber Eats. Um, however, at the same point, you know, delivery is going to be a huge part of the restaurant industry over the coming years. So I have been keeping an eye out for a company that was able to kind of um, square that circle, essentially. And one that's recently IPO is a company called Olo. Uh, okay. So Olo essentially allows restaurants restaurant brands restaurant chains even kind of independent restaurants to build their kind of own digital presence um and that's the, it's built on this kind of subscription solution that allows them to create a digital ordering portable portal for their customers um, and it's compatible with most back ends and allows restaurants to process their own orders bypassing kind of food delivery businesses uh, so that's a company I'm kind of interested in they've got a couple of nice sides to it they can for example you know pr- they can kind of link up or create a marketplace for the food delivery businesses to pitch to deliver their food for them or they can have their own in-house teams or they can do things like have a hybrid system where they have their own in-house teams for uh, peak hours and then you know fish it out or farm it out to the delivery businesses when it's not that that busy uh, yeah. it's young business but it's got uh, 400 brands operating in the system already including the likes of Shake Shack Denny's Dairy Queen Wingstop Five Guys uh, it processes about 1.8 million orders every day um, wow. And at the moment, pretty much like everything at the moment, the valuation is pretty outrageous. Um, but they do have quite an impressive founder CEO, a young guy called Noah Glass, uh, who really does seem to know his stuff. I've listened to a couple of uh, interviews with him now, and he's he seems to be a really bright guy. Um, and so I'll be keeping an eye closely on it. Uh, I won't be investing at 50 times sales, but... Um, <laughs> if 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 it can grow into that valuation, or if there's a good pullback, I'll definitely consider it for for my Wall Street. I won't look at companies these days that are under fifty times. <laughs> <laughs> so that's it from this week's stock club. Um, don't forget about all the great new stuff in my Wall Street at the moment. And if there's anything you want us to discuss or explain in the next episode, make sure to get in touch. You can find us on Twitter. That's at my Wall Street HQ. Or email us at pod at mywallstreet.com. That's P-O-D at mywallstreet.com. Don't forget to subscribe to Stock Club. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a review or a rating for us on whatever platform you listen to us on. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you in two weeks. Happy investing. Hold up. 
The biggest names in tennis are coming to Paris for the most anticipated Roland Garros in years. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled tournament access as the world's top players in tennis face off against each other. Will the veteran champions continue their dominance or will a fresh face emerge to challenge their legacy on the clay courts? Daily live coverage of this epic showdown begins Monday, May 20th. Don't miss a matchup. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens.